Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison, and we're excited to bring you the news. Derek, let's start with Israel-Palestine, and why don't we start with Biden's visit? Yes, uh, Joe Biden arrived in Israel uh, for a one-day visit on Wednesday. Uh, I believe he's now back in the U.S. He uh, was there initially to embrace Benjamin Netanyahu, supposedly uh, every, we were told to kind of push him behind the scenes to ease up a little bit on Gazan civilians. And then for a summit with Arab leaders in Amman, Jordan, uh, as people may be aware, uh, the Ahli hospital in Gaza uh, was struck by something, blew up on Tuesday. We can talk about that in a, in a few minutes, but um, as a result of that, uh, his summit with those Arab leaders was called off. And so this was purely a, a like, uh, let's prop up the Israeli government visit. Uh, the optics of it were, uh, whatever happened behind the scenes, the optics of it were, you know, cheerleading uh, what the Israelis are doing. Uh, his arrival uh, did uh, involve some movement on the issue of humanitarian aid. I'm sure people are aware there is a humanitarian catastrophe. That's what it's been called by a number of international organizations in Gaza as a result of the Israeli siege. They've cut off food, water, medicine, fuel, uh, electricity, anything you can can name. It's been cut off. Uh, Biden was apparently able to get the Israelis to agree to some movement of some humanitarian goods uh, through the Rafah checkpoint, which connects Gaza to Egypt. Uh, that's there, There's still a lot of pieces to that that I, I, I don't think have been released or that we won't know, um, but it sounds like they're prepared to let food, medicine, uh, and water in. Uh, that hasn't started yet. Uh, there's a, a lot of humanitarian aid that's piling up in Sinai, uh, has been piling up in Sinai while the Israelis have been refusing to allow it in. Uh, they've gotten agreement now. The Egyptians had already been agitating for this. So uh, the Egyptian government has agreed. The Israeli government has agreed. There's some work being done on the checkpoint itself. And I think roads into and out of the checkpoint, which have been damaged, um, you know, to some degree just from lack of maintenance, but uh, also the Israelis have, have bombarded Rafah several times over the last, uh, whatever it's been, 13 days at this point. Uh, and so there's some repair work going on. The aid may start coming in on Friday. That's the, that's the latest I've seen. So, uh, that's, that's where things stand. And as I said, Biden's, uh, return now, um, he's, uh, you know, made his one day visit to demonstrate solidarity or whatever it was supposed to do. Uh, and that's, uh, that's the end of that. Why don't you talk about the UN veto? Yeah. I mean, we talked about this in the subscriber update yesterday. Uh, the UN, uh, held a vote on Wednesday on a, a, a resolution that was the security council, I should say, held a vote on Wednesday on a resolution that was drafted by the Brazilian government, uh, that called for a condemned, Hamas's attacks of October 7, 
uh, and it called for humanitarian pause in the conflict to allow aid in. Uh, the vote on that was 12 to 1 uh, in favor. Russia and China abstained. Uh, sadly, the one no vote was the U.S. Since the U.S. has a veto on the council, that was the end of that uh, resolution. Uh you know, I, I, I'm sort of spent with my, uh, my anger over this, but it's, uh, just a shocking decision, I think, for the U.S. to stand alone, even, even in the context of the U.S. Israel relationship at the UN, where the U.S. constantly runs cover, uh, for Israel. Uh, this, this is really hard to justify. The refusal to even countenance a resolution that was unenforceable, but just called for a humanitarian pause, wouldn't even use the term ceasefire. It was so weak. Uh, and the U.S. couldn't even countenance that. It, it's, uh, it's a really, uh, stunning demonstration, I think, of, of where the Biden administration is publicly. And again, I say this knowing that People are going to say, well, but behind the scenes, you don't know what he's doing behind the scenes. Yeah, I guess there's no evidence that whatever he's doing behind the scenes is having any effect on Israeli decision making. And, uh, you know, the behind the scenes stuff is is the stuff that uh, by definition nobody sees. And so if you're projecting an image and you're trying to appeal to uh, Arab countries in the region, you're trying to appeal to the so-called global south, uh, this all sends a very clear message about U.S. priorities. What about the ground incursion in the hospital? Yeah, the the hospital, um, you know, I think people can listen to the special. It's just important to know that it happened and it's caused protests throughout the Middle East and, and uh, North Africa, uh, parts of the Muslim world. You know, just spontaneous and very large displays of anger, pop popular uh, anger and, and frustration over what's being done to Gaza. Um, and that that I think will have... Uh, continuing diplomatic ramifications as this moves forward. Beyond that, I'm, you know, they're still debating who actually destroyed the hospital. I have my theories. We talked about them last night. Uh, I don't think we need to go into any more detail than than we've already done. As to the ground invasion, this is something that we've been waiting for. Everybody's been watching and waiting for when are the Israelis going to finally pull the trigger on this. They've they've delayed and delayed and delayed. They've delayed now about a week uh, from when they initially gave their 24-hour notice to the people of northern Gaza to evacuate. Uh, there is word now that uh, I think the AP reported the uh, Israeli defense minister, Yoav Gallant, uh, was ordering, he was telling uh, soldiers to be ready to go. I don't know how, what, what that means in terms of how imminent the ground invasion is, but it's clearly um, still on the agenda despite these delays. There, there's still a plan to do this. And um, as I say, they have been massing forces uh, around Gaza in preparation for something. I will note Axios, if people uh, read that site for some reason who aren't obliged to, like people who obsessively read the news such as myself, uh, Axios did report on the Biden visit uh, behind the scenes uh, and said that Biden uh, met during his meetings with uh, Israeli officials in uh, particular, uh, I guess, with the war cabinet, the quote unquote war cabinet uh, that Benjamin Netanyahu and uh, a couple of other officials have, have formed to prosecute this conflict. Uh, Biden asked about the end game here for Gaza. And the answer was, we don't know what it is yet. So that's not good. Uh, it's the kind of thing that, 
leads into a months long occupation, if not longer. Uh, so just a, another bad sign here from uh, based on this reporting. Okay, Derek, let's do an elections roundup. And why don't we start with New Zealand? Yeah, there have been a number of elections over the the past week or election. There's a lot of election news to talk about. The New Zealand election uh, last Saturday, parliamentary election, went pretty much as polling suggested it would. The conservative National Party and the right-wing ACT party probably eked out a, a victory they certainly defeated the Labour Party. Chris Hipkins, the, the prime minister, conceded that uh, he is remaining as party leader, but he conceded that he will no longer be prime minister. Uh, last I checked, there was still some vote counting to be done. And the, they were uh, the count, as it stood, was right on kind of a razor's edge between a uh, an outright national ACT coalition majority, which would mean they could just go ahead and form a government. And them falling like right on the line of 50 percent of, of seats, which, you know, obviously puts you just that one vote short, in which case they would probably have to turn to the far right New Zealand first party for support. I don't know how that's going to shake out, but that is uh, something to pay, pay attention to, I suppose. Tell us about the elections in Liberia. The Liberian presidential election, uh, which took place last Tuesday, actually, not this past Tuesday, but the Tuesday before, uh, it's taken a while to count the votes. Uh, that election, unsurprisingly, looks like it's headed to a runoff. Uh, George Weah, the president, the incumbent, uh, is slightly ahead at last count of his challenge, main challenger, Joseph Boakai. But they're both below 44% of the vote. So neither one of them, and this is with like 99 point something percent of the vote counted. Uh, neither one of them was anywhere close to a 50 percent plus one majority, which is what would be needed for a first round victory. So they will head to a runoff. I don't know that there's been a date scheduled for the runoff. Um, they are there's some there are apparently some irregularities in a couple of polling sites. So there may be uh, some work to be done to clear those up before the final vote count can be settled and then the the re, uh, the uh, runoff can be scheduled. We was expected to have trouble here uh, particularly uh, there was some you know some thinking that he could lose uh, outright or that he will lose in the runoff is his economic record is pretty checkered uh, at best and so this is not terribly surprising that he's he's found himself uh, heading to a second round. What about the elections in Poland? Yeah, the Polish election is a big one. Um, this is going to have uh, potentially huge repercussions for European politics and for just kind of basic rights for a lot of communities in Poland, LGBT, etc. Polish voters uh, went to the polls on Sunday for parliamentary election uh, and a centrist opposition alliance led by uh, a former prime minister, Donald Tusk, who uh, also uh, served uh, as, uh, I think, European Commission president or one of the, the two European Union presidencies. I can't remember which one off the top of my head. Uh, but you know, formerly had been Polish prime minister. He put together a coalition led by his uh, civic coalition alliance. Uh, he's formed a, a block with two other uh, centrist-ish parties. Uh, and they have won, it looks like, a collective 54% uh, of the vote. Uh, so, uh, you know, that should seal the deal. Now, there's some 
there's a process that needs to be gone through here for, uh, you know, the Polish president, Andrzej Duda, uh, will have to pick somebody uh, to form a government and then they'll have to go through the process of uh, forming a coalition and the the sort of uh, pro forma aspect of this. Uh, Duda, Duda actually is partial toward the current ruling party law and justice, the, the right wing law and justice party, uh, which has lost its majority. Uh, nevertheless, law and justice did emerge as the largest single party in parliament. They don't control a majority anymore. Their coalition has lost its majority, but they are still the, the largest single party. So he may try to play some games here and give law and justice first crack at, at forming a government, even if it's a lost cause, they can delay uh, and who knows what can happen in the interim. So that's that's another thing uh, to watch out for. And as I say, uh, there are potentially very big ramifications. The EU and Poland under law and justice have been at odds with one another over things like rule of law, democracy protection, uh, Polish aid, you know, EU funds have been held up over this issue, over judicial uh, overhauls and reforms. So there's a lot of European factors to consider. Um, you know, I don't think it'll affect anything related to the war in Ukraine, uh, particularly, but, but there are some other things that that could, uh, that could really shake up. Okay, let's talk about the elections in Ecuador. Yes, Ecuador had its presidential runoff on Sunday. Daniel Noboa, who's something of a political newcomer and is the apparent heir to a banana empire, uh, won that election. He was running against a leftist uh, with ties to Rafael Correa named Luisa Gonzalez. Gonzalez had won the first round, but obviously fell short of, of winning an outright victory. Uh, polling had had suggested this was a fairly close uh, race, and Noboa took, I think, 52% of the, the head-to-head voters somewhere around there. So it was pretty tight. Um, but, you know, there's some speculation that uh, Correa, who's a very polarizing figure in, in Ecuadorian politics, that, that he may have uh, hurt Gonzalez as much as he helped her, his, his kind of specter, uh, hanging over the race. We don't know very much about Noboa. He seems to be pretty centrist, pro-business, kind of center-right. I, I shouldn't say centrist, center-right. Uh, he will serve out the rest of uh, Guillermo Lasso's term, the current president who called for these snap elections to avoid being impeached. Uh, he'll serve out the remainder of, of his term, and then the regular election in 2025, uh, he can run for a re-election at that time. All right, Derek, let's move on to China and let's talk about the Belt and Road Forum that was just held. Uh, yes, the Chinese government held a, its annual Belt and Road Forum on uh, Tuesday and Wednesday. Um, the event was largely overshadowed, as you might imagine, by events in Gaza. It did feature a, you know, a chance for Vladimir Putin, who doesn't leave Russia all that much uh, these days. He did go to the forum and uh, you know, he and Xi Jinping demonstrated their a close relationship again for everybody and had a had a meeting who knows what they talked about as far as belt and road the initiative is concerned uh this forum this year's forum did mark a sort of a a shift or it emphasized the shift that's already taken place uh in belt and road away from these massive multi-part infrastructure projects like the Chinese-Pakistan Economic Corridor uh, towards smaller initiatives that are more targeted and cheaper. Uh, This has to do with the Chinese government's difficulty 
collecting on debts, essentially. And, and, you know, you've seen Western commentators talk about this being a deliberate attempt to lock countries into a debt trap and, and you know, sort of enthrall them to China. Um, it, it, the, the Chinese government really doesn't behave that way. I mean, they want to get paid back. Uh, and so, you know, I think they're, they're viewing this shift as a way to scale down a little bit. Uh, they did uh, stick a uh, sock a, a sizable amount of money, I think about $100 billion into the program to boost its lending power. But um, they feel like these smaller projects will be more manageable and easier for client states to pay back. Um, COVID was a big wake up call, I think, for for Belt and Road in terms of the economy, you know, turning in a, a negative direction in countries that had previously been keeping up with their uh, their debt payments no longer being able to do so. So that uh, that probably is is the motivation for this shift. And what about China's nuclear arsenal? Yeah, there's a new report from the U.S. military uh, that was released on Thursday uh, that says China is building up its nuclear weapons arsenal faster than previously believed. Uh, it's up to somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 warheads, if you believe this uh, this report. And, that, uh, and they also warned that China may be uh, trying to develop a new intercontinental missile system, uh, not necessarily for nuclear weapons, could be uh, for conventional weapons, So, that, but nevertheless, that would uh, uh, allow them to reach targets in the U.S. Uh, with this system. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't put a, a huge amount of stock in anything that comes out of the Pentagon about China, but this is going to fuel debates in Congress. It's going to fuel debates about nuclear modernization and maybe even expanding uh, the size of the U.S. nuclear arsenal. We'll get into in a moment uh, Russia's decision to pull out of the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. Uh, that that plays into this too. You know, the U.S. is already planning to spend uh, over a trillion dollars modernizing its its nuclear arsenal, and I think the urgency with which people tackle that or approach that is going to going to grow a bit, probably because of this report. Okay, Derek, why don't you give it an update on Sudan? Yes, there was an update in uh, Reuters on Wednesday citing eyewitnesses in Khartoum and that and the region around the, the Sudanese capital, uh, suggesting that the Rapid Support Forces group, the paramilitary group that's been battling the Sudanese military, has essentially um, gained not full control over the capital region, but it's it's controls Khartoum. Uh, and uh, the other two cities in that area, uh, Bahri and Omdurman, feels comfortable enough in its control over the cities that it's become begun moving forces out into the surrounding uh, hinterlands. So they've advanced into Jazeera State, which is located just south of Khartoum. Uh, they've been attacking villages and towns in that region, taking them over. Uh, inside the capital, it seems pretty clear at this point that the, the, the contour of this conflict, the main kind of pattern that it follows is that RSF fighters are consistently superior to, to the Sudanese military uh, when it comes to on-the-ground fighting. The Sudanese military uh, has a a advantages in air power and artillery power, and so it, when it loses ground, it falls back on those things and it conducts airstrikes to try and dislodge RSF fighters and artillery barrages, et cetera. That hasn't worked clearly. I mean, the RSF has been able to, to hold and consolidate the gains that it's made. And it now seems, uh, again, this is according to Reuters, uh, that it has captured a number of long-range artillery uh, pieces. So it may be leveling the playing field on that regard and it's been using them to attack 
the military's very important Wadi Sayyid Air Base, uh, which is north of Khartoum. So um, I would say I, I, this doesn't take into account, obviously, the the fighting in Darfur, the fighting in uh, North Kordofan or South Kordofan. But I would say the the war is not going well in Khartoum, at least for the for the Sudanese military. Okay, Derek, let's talk a little bit about Mali. Yes, there's something to, to watch, something to watch here in Mali where uh, UN peacekeepers are still withdrawing from facilities across the northern part of that country, which is leaving open the possibility of intensified conflict between the coordination of Azawad movements, rebel group, uh, and the government as they kind of both move to, to seize control of these UN facilities as the peacekeepers withdraw. Uh, I mentioned this because on Monday, uh, the UN announced that it was beginning a staged withdrawal. So it's not not a rapid thing. It's going to take some time. Uh, beginning a staged withdrawal from the Kidal region in northern Mali. That is a CMA stronghold, rebel stronghold. And so uh, I suspect there is going to be more than a little bit of uh, fighting over these facilities as the UN tries to leave. Uh, and what that'll mean for the peacekeepers, who knows if they'll be, uh, you know, allowed to to just kind of slip out. But I think the CMA and the government, the junta, uh, are at the very least going to be contesting some of these sites uh, when the UN pulls out. Let's move on to Russia and the nuclear test ban treaty. Yes, uh, the Russian Duma, this is something the Russians have talked about, and I think we've mentioned uh, here, the Russian Duma on Tuesday voted unanimously to begin the process of revoking uh, Russia's ratification of the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, which uh, came into, uh, never actually came into force, it was never ratified by enough signatories, but uh, it was signed on, on in 1996. Um, as I say, this is something the Russians have been talking about doing for a little while now. Vladimir Putin uh, openly floated this idea earlier this month. Um, nobody seems to think that a nuclear test is imminent. Uh, there have been reports of the U.S. and Russia and China all doing some maintenance on their various potential nuclear testing sites. I don't think that indicates anything other than, uh, you know, they want to at least convey the impression that a return to nuclear testing is possible. The main element here is that the Russians uh, want to put themselves on equal footing with the United States and demonstrate once again that they are they too are a great power. And of course, the U.S. never ratified the, the nuclear test ban treaty in the first place. Uh, so this would simply put Russia on, on equal footing there. All right, Derek, give an update on Ukraine. The big update in Ukraine is that the Ukrainian military uh, carried out uh, kind of overnight into Wednesday. So from uh, kind of Tuesday night, or actually Monday night into Tuesday, I suppose, uh, carried out attacks on Russian airfields in the occupied Luhansk and Zaporizhia oblasts of Ukraine using long-range U.S.-supplied artillery for the first time, the Army Tactical Missile System. Uh, this is, if people have been following the, the saga over weapons, the U.S. Uh, has recently uh, agreed, after holding out for quite some time, to supply the uh, Army Tactical Missile System to Ukraine. Uh, this system is used with uh, the rocket launchers the U.S. has already provided to Ukraine. It has a maximum range of around 300 kilometers, but apparently the U.S. is sending uh, a modified version of this uh, this thing to, to Ukraine that is capped out at about 160 kilometers and also carries cluster munitions, which is uh, an exciting innovation for the Ukrainian people, I'm sure. 
This is partly out of concern that the Ukrainians might wind up using uh, these things to attack targets inside Russia instead of Russian targets in Ukraine. Uh, so that's that's the concern. And that was part of the reason for the, the holdout for for many months. Um, the reports that I've seen suggest that the, the attack did do uh, a fairly substantial damage to a number of Russian aircraft. I didn't see anything uh, about casualties. But again, it's the first time that they've used this weapon uh, and, uh, you know, probably worth noting. So uh, there are other things, a couple other things. Uh, the Russian assault on the city of Avdivka uh, in eastern Ukraine has been kind of flagging, according to observers, the Ukrainian officials and other observers. They've been uh, lowering the intensity of, of their efforts to take the city. But apparently there are now indications that they're moving additional assets uh, to the area around Avdivka, which suggests that they're going to re-intensify those efforts at some point. And the other, the last thing I would say here is uh, the Biden administration uh, late last week, and there have been you know a number of outlets doing like satellite analysis since then over the last few days, said that that uh, North Korea has begun uh, conclusively begun sending weapons to Russia for use in Ukraine. Um, the, the the initial accusation uh, released on Friday was that they sent. 1,000 containers of military equipment and munitions. This is stuff like artillery, probably heavily uh, oriented toward like artillery, uh, ammunition, things like that. I don't know that it will be uh, decisive in Ukraine, but it, it does help to backstop the Russian military, which, uh, like the Ukrainians, has been shooting through this stuff faster than they can produce it. Uh, and North Korea still has a, a pretty substantial uh, capacity in terms of uh, manufacturing these sorts of things. So that will help the Russians maintain operations and maintain a sort of operational pace in, in eastern Ukraine, probably. Thanks, Derek. Let's talk about the recent attacks in Belgium and France. Yes, uh, the two attacks this week that seem to have uh, Islamic state ties. I don't not to say the Islamic State is like planning attacks in Europe again, but a couple of lone wolves who claimed allegiance to Islamic State. One uh, carried out a knife attack in northern France on Friday, uh, killing a teacher and wounding three other people. And then the second was a gunman uh, who late Monday evening shot and killed two Swedish nationals, wounded a third person. I'm not sure if they were also Swedish or um, as I say, both of them claimed in, in videos that they released either before or after uh, the incident claimed some connection to Islamic State or inspiration uh, from Islamic State. Uh, this has sent panic through Europe. Uh, the Italian government on Wednesday suspended free movement uh, under the Schengen Zone Pact with Slovenia. Uh, Slovenia is a conduit for, uh, shall we say, undocumented migrants entering Italy overland. And so uh, these already xenophobic Italian government has decided to, uh, to get even more xenophobic because of a couple of relatively minor incidents. And so they're, they're blocking off that border or at least imposing checks along that border that did not previously exist. Slovenia has in turn uh, done the same thing now on its borders. Uh, with Croatia and Hungary. So this could turn into a little bit of a domino thing. Uh, and, uh, you know, the EU is uh, sort of founded partly on the principle of free, free movement, but that uh, uh, that gets shut down pretty quickly when people start to get uh, worried about terrorism. 
Let's move on to the upcoming election in Argentina. Yes, um, folks are probably familiar with generally what's going on there. Argentina will go, will hold the first round of its presidential election. I don't expect it to be decisive, so there will probably be a runoff, but they will hold their first, the first round on Sunday uh, based on the outcome of uh, the primary earlier this year. Uh, the expectation is that Javier Malay, who is a uh, libertarian right wing, um, you know, kind of cranky guy who wants to uh, dollarize the Argentine economy and, and, you know, stop using the peso and adopt the U.S. dollar essentially as uh, national currency. The expectation is that he will uh, do quite well. Again, I still don't know that he's going to be able to win an outright victory, and I don't know what it's going to look like for him in the runoff. But uh, the expectation is at least I think that he will win or finish first in this first round. Uh, there is a, uh, or there was a criminal case filed against him by Argentine prosecutors uh, on Friday, uh, accusing him of intentionally devaluing the peso. And this is kind of interesting because uh, Millet's comments about the peso to the press, calling it worthless and, you know, uh, advocating for this shift to the dollar appear to have had an effect on the value of the peso. They do appear to have uh, kind of lowered the peso's value, uh, caused a, a bit of inflation, uh, which in turn then helps his case for getting rid of the peso uh, and helps the political case that he's trying to make. So there's a sort of cycle at play here. Whether he's intentionally doing that or just saying what he thinks, I think it's going to be very hard to prove but this criminal case is an interesting wrinkle. I don't know that it will go anywhere, uh, but it's an interesting wrinkle to throw into the race at this uh, at this late point. As I say, polling all suggests uh, and analysis suggests that that Millet is going to win this first round. Uh, but there's there's the it seems like he's probably going to uh, wind up going to a runoff. Derek, could you tell us a little bit about the sanctions deal in Venezuela? Yes. Uh, the Washington Post first reported this on Monday that the U.S. and Venezuelan governments had come to agreement on uh, what is being portrayed as a sanctions for elections deal. I don't think that's entirely uh, accurate, but we'll get into that in a minute. Um, basically, the terms and this was uh, affirmed the following day during a meeting between representatives of Nicolas Maduro's government and the Venezuelan political opposition in Barbados. They signed an agreement. Uh, under which uh, there could be some moves made toward uh, what uh, the U.S. government would consider free and fair elections next year in Venezuela, uh, some kind of a pathway for opposition politicians who have been barred from running for office by Maduro's government to get to, to get that ban lifted, ensuring that opposition candidates get uh, equal media time or at least access to media, uh, allowing international election observers to come in and uh, monitor what goes on in the election. Uh, a lot of different pieces that are supposed to, taken together, uh, provide some assurances. Now, uh, there's nothing uh, concrete, as far as I know, in the Barbados Agreement that provides a, a clear pathway for these opposition politicians to get out from under their legal bans. And the U.S. has said uh, that if it doesn't see movement on that front, particularly the, the Biden administration has told Maduro, apparently, uh, that it will uh, scrap this agreement. But the broader agreement with the U.S. involves uh, the easing 
of U.S. sanctions on Venezuela's oil and gas sector and its gold sector. Uh, so they're uh, issuing licenses that allow dealings with uh, the state energy firm, PDVSA, that allow dealings with the state gold firm, gold mining firm, I should say. Uh, Venezuelan officials have already started kind of, you know, scoping out the oil market and trying to uh, establish some or reestablish some relationships that uh, were frozen because of sanctions. So this is all uh, already starting to happen. Um, the reason that I say I think it's it's a little disingenuous to call this a sanctions for elections deal is because it, not coincidentally to all of this, after the uh, Barbados agreement was signed, after the U.S. announced uh, that it was doing some sanctions relief, a flight uh, arrived in Venezuela from the U.S. This was on Wednesday, carrying a plane load of Venezuelan migrants. And this is the other piece of this deal that I think the Biden administration doesn't want to talk about so openly. Uh, in addition to the elections piece, uh, getting Maduro to agree to make some concessions there, the, the Biden administration has also gotten Maduro to agree to uh, allow the deportation of undocumented Venezuelans in U.S. custody back to Venezuela. Uh, this even though the United States government does not, obviously does not consider Venezuela uh, a safe country to, to return people uh, to which to return people, and that is uh, an international law violation if there ever was one. Uh, we're doing it anyway, and apparently U.S. immigration officials are hoping to make this a weekly event, these flights. Uh, so I think that's part of this uh, sanctions relief, too. Okay, let's end with U.S. oil production. Yeah, um, I, I want to end on a happy note. Uh, we rarely end on a happy note, and so I wanted to say... Uh, U.S. domestic oil production topped out at 13.2 million barrels per day in the first week of October. That is a new record. So congratulations, Danny. Congratulations to all of us uh, for doing this. Uh, you know, I think this is this is obviously fantastic news. The only way it could be bad is if there was some kind of, you know, well-documented scientific phenomenon happening whereby the burning of fossil fuels was causing the degradation of the planet's environment and uh, potentially the destruction of human civilization. But we don't, that's not, that's not a thing. Uh, that would be silly. Uh, I should also note that there's new research from Norway's Center for International Climate and Environmental Research that says that uh, planetary Carbon dioxide emissions are on pace to increase by 1% this year over last year. That would make 2023 the record holder for carbon dioxide emissions. So congratulations again uh, are in order. Uh, the researchers said that if we wanted to uh, actually be mitigating the effects of climate change, uh, we should actually be seeing a reduction uh, by somewhere on the order of 5% this year. So uh, increasing by 1% is obviously quite a bit different than reducing by 5%, but, uh, you know, I'm sure it'll all uh, come out on the wash. Thank you, Derek. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, please check out our various specials. Please check out our recent series on uh, the history of modern Palestine with Rashid Khalidi. It's still free. Um, and also, if you're interested in donating to um, a cause that could really help Palestinian people, please look at the Palestinian Medical Assistance Project that is being um, supported by Hassan Piker. Uh, and there's a link in the show notes. Thank you all for listening and see you soon.